Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino obtained his MD from the University of Arizona and is also a certified functional medicine practitioner. He has also studied with physicians from the Center of Integrative Medicine, including Dr. Andrew Wheel. Paul, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Gary. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, you're going to be very interesting because um, we're going to be talking about an all-meat diet or carnivore diet today, but from a slightly different aspect, I feel, because you have a history and a background in functional medicine. As, and as we just said a little bit offline there, what I find most interesting in this scenario is that functional medicine practitioners tend to use a lot of plant-based um, thinking. So try to get a, all your leafy greens and a whole variety. But So you've done that, you've studied all of that, but you're now coming at this from an all-meat or more animal-based protein diet. So yeah, we're going to have some interesting uh, topics of conversation, I think, today. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting um, alternative perspective on, on how to achieve health or get to the root cause of illness for people. Uh-huh. So this has got me thinking, so the main topic I want to talk about today is why nose to tail is so important because nose to tail in animal-based protein or eating is going to give you that full spectrum, that functional medicine um, type of thinking where I think you're going to get exposed to lots of vitamins and minerals and nutrients. So if you could just explain to listeners then maybe as a MD and a functional medicine practitioner, what got you so interested in a carnivore diet or all meat diet? Yeah, so um, I think we should make the distinction pretty clearly there. Uh, oftentimes, a carnivorous diet, like you're saying, gets thought of as an all-meat diet, but we are contrasting that with nose-to-tail eating. It's not just meat. It's not just muscle meat. It's eating the whole animal like our ancestors would have done. So we'll talk more about the importance of eating the whole animal, but there's, it's interesting to make that, that distinction for people. What got me interested in this type of eating was the fact that it's, it's creating significant healing in some populations. Whenever as a physician, I see something that works for people, especially people with autoimmune disease, it really raises an eyebrow and gets me excited. And it makes me think this is a potentially useful intervention for people who are suffering. And you know, on my social media, I've talked to people, and this is an interesting thing to sort of consider the overall context of the diet, is that there are multiple diets that have been helpful for people with a variety of diseases. There are people who have, who report that they've had improvements in their symptoms, whether it's Hashimoto's or inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, also with vegan diets. So I don't, I don't think that we know yet that a carnivorous or true carnivore, nose-to-tail carnivore diet is the be-all and end-all. But the fact that it seemed to be working for some people and causing or resulting in resolution of autoimmune disease really caught my attention because it's really hard to treat autoimmune disease for people. Um, you know, I'm just at the end of my residency in psychiatry at the University of Washington, and I would imagine that I really feel like there's strong evidence that uh, a lot of psychiatric disease is actually autoimmune in nature, that there are activation of microglial cells, which are brain-derived macrophages in the brain, and that there's an autoimmune neuroinflammatory component to a lot of psychiatric disease. And there's, this is paralleled in many things we see in other diseases. There's so much autoimmunity. There's so much inflammation, and that's what functional medicine seeks to really mitigate. If you ask any functional medicine practitioner, they're going to tell you that probably the main thing that we're looking to correct in functional medicine is inflammation. Functional medicine as a whole is a term that means root cause medicine. 
And I think that most people would say that the root cause of the majority of diseases that we see today chronically is inflammation. But that term is so hard to kind of get your head around and really understand. And then the question becomes the why behind the why behind the why. Where is the inflammation coming from? And the idea that food could be causing inflammation for people is a pretty radical concept, at least within mainstream traditional medicine. And so functional medicine usually seeks to do an elimination diet pretty early on in protocols to see if some of those foods could be triggering things. And so from this perspective, I think a nose-to-tail carnivorous diet is quite a useful adjunct because some people, and this is like you mentioned or alluded to, some people are probably reacting to plants and some people are probably reacting to many plants. This is this is kind of a pretty radical concept in functional medicine. You know, I think that most functional medicine practitioners would, would say that plants are amazing and there's this conceptualization in functional medicine that plants are benevolent and that we should eat the rainbow. But I think this is an interesting idea to kind of challenge the notion and say, man, I just don't know about that. There's a lot of anti-nutrients in plants. There are probably many things in these plants which are triggering people's immune systems. And so that idea got me really interested when I saw people getting better on a carnivorous diet. And over the course of my uh, exploration of a carnivorous diet, I'd say over the last year or so, it's been interesting to kind of delve into how to best construct that type of a diet. Yeah, I could only imagine that the challenge there when, um, as you said, you know, <laughs> I've been to some functional medicine conferences, and it, the emphasis is a lot on, um, you know, plant based materials and uh, the different types and why they're so important for you and a part of like a detoxification process or a healing process and to, to come at this and say well potentially yeah they're, they're, they're going to be harming or stimulating inflammation yeah. in certain population places i mean I, just a, a, a side tangent question there in the functional medicine conferences is this sort of all meat diet or nose to tail kind of eating even being discussed right now no, it's not. It's just, it's completely under the radar. I don't think anyone's discussing it because most functional medicine, you know, ideas, the paradigm of functional medicine is built on plant foods. And I mean, hopefully I can be a part of changing this idea that there's something inflammatory or I just don't understand why people think that you need to do a plant-based diet to detoxify. I would actually argue the reverse, you know, that animal foods, and that's kind of what I'm interested in as I've gotten more into this, that animal foods, especially eating and eating animals nose to tail, is perhaps the least toxic diet that we could eat. It's the most easily assimilable. It's the highest uh, concentration and density of nutrients, which are the most bioavailable. So I would argue that to detoxify, we would eliminate all plants and just eat animals nose to tail. And, you know, you could get into nuance of how you prepare the animals. Certainly, you don't want to like eat a bunch of charred meat with a lot of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. However, you know, animals are easy for humans to assimilate and digest. And some people can tolerate some plants, but for a lot of people, there's an issue there. And if we look at plants, there are lots of plant pesticides, which the plants are making themselves to prevent predators from eating them. And I would argue that those, and there are many, you know, anti-nutrients in plants, which are not so benign. So I, I think that this is going to come around in the next few years the people in, in the functional medicine conferences are going to either look at me or look at other people who are advocating this type of thing and, and start to maybe either, you know, want to discuss it or say, wow, this is kind of alternative. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you brought up there about the elimination diet, and that's actually something I've, I also personally think that the, a, a meat-based diet is a, is a very 
good option when it comes to um, elimination diets because mm-hmm. you, you cut out, you're making your life so simple just by eating, say, if you get it, I know a lot of people just go all the way down to just, I'm going to just have some beef and I'm just going to start today and the next few days just eating that and then start adding in one or two items here. So in, in your um, thinking now or your experience so far, would you would you prefer to put um, potentially patients who are suffering autoimmune diseases or issues um, if you're going to choose an elimination diet, put them on an animal-based uh, version of the elimination diet first versus a plant-based elimination diet? Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally would. And many people imagine a carnivorous diet to be a type of elimination diet, and I'm okay with that. I, I think that the incredible thing about a, an animal-based or a, a nose-to-tail carnivorous diet is that it's, it's more than an elimination diet. It's sustainable long-term, which is the interesting thing. One of the criticisms of strict elimination diets that people have often like autoimmune paleo or even more strict for food elimination diets is that they often result in nutrient deficiencies long-term and you can't do them long-term. But a nose-to-tail carnivorous diet, you can do this long-term. It's, it's, I think that it, we should contrast that here with an only meat and water diet, which you cannot do long-term. And I have some concerns about people who are doing meat and water diets. And that would be like an elimination component. You could do meat and water for some short amount of time, but you wouldn't want to do it long-term. But yes, I think that if a patient is willing and able, there's definitely an emotional component and an attachment to food component. But if a patient is interested and willing and able to do a whole foods animal-based diet as an elimination diet, I think that would be the ideal place to start. Um, Because it's just like we said, it eliminates all of these plant toxins, lectins, anti-nutrients, things like oxalates that are going to, that could be triggering people. And then if people really want to incorporate plants back, which a lot of people do, then we can start one at a time as, as you would on a traditional, you know, elimination diet sort of paradigm. Yeah, and I guess when you bring in those plant-based materials back in with your background in functional medicine, I, th- I think that to you would be fascinating to see, okay, so supposedly th- this plant-based material is supposed to be very good for X, Y, or Z. If I bring it back, am I actually getting that benefit or is this patient reacting to it? it I, I guess you're going to have, have a really interesting time to be able to see what different types of plants or is there a trend line that you're picking up here? Yeah. And I mean, people often ask this. I think that that one of the things that I would like to be able to do for people is construct maybe a hierarchy of plants that are more or less triggering. People will will often ask, like, are there plants that are less triggering than others? And I think there probably are. Um, And so, yeah, what you see generally is that, I mean, things like grains and seeds and often, often nuts and beans. So the seeds, those are all seeds, right? Those are all plant reproductive uh, plant reproductive seed, we just call them nuts or seeds or grains or beans, but they're all seeds. Those are probably the most triggering thing for people, which makes sense. I mean, Georgia Eat has talked about that. Many people have talked about those are the most highly defended part of the part of the plant, excuse me. And then as it sprouts, a sprout is probably the second most highly defended part of the of the plant. And it's which is ironic to me that people are now talking about eating lots of broccoli sprouts because I think that's a horrible idea. And you know, in alfalfa sprouts, there are toxic compounds like cannabinoid. And so if you look at sprouts, that's the second most toxic part of a plant, the seed being the first. And then as the plant grows to be a full plant, often the leaves and stems and roots can be toxic too. And then, so that's the, that's the third. And then the fruit is often the least toxic, relatively speaking, in terms of anti-nutrients. We know that long-term fruit-based diets are probably not healthy and there's a fructose component there, which is probably not a great thing. But if you look at fruit, that is the, the least defended part of the plant in terms of uh, actual plant material. And people are always asking about avocado and things like that. 
and you know, I would say avocado is probably least uh, offensive to people, but some people do react to it definitely. And some people do react to plants. And so those are probably the, the sort of the non-sugary fruits would be the things that I would incorporate back into people's diets first, depending on the things that they're suffering from. You know, people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth often have a, quite a sensitivity to fibers. And so, you know, things like squash or avocado might be less defended and less toxic, but those could definitely trigger people with SIBO because of the fiber and um, the prebiotic starches. So depending on the individual, we see how it goes. But the seeds, I think, are the most triggering part. And then the nightshade vegetables seem to be pretty triggering for people. And there's evidence that in cell culture, at least, uh, the solanaceae vegetables that are nightshades, tomato, eggplant, green pepper, red pepper, it's all the same, you know, all the hot spicy peppers, the solanaceae spices, paprika, chili, all the whole, the whole tomato eggplant family with all the spices and chilies. People are, I'm sure they're weeping right now because they love these spices so much, but those tend to be the most triggering outside of seeds for people. And we've seen in cell culture, they actually um, increase or decrease, excuse me, the transepithelial electrical resistance, which is sort of the cell culture equivalent of uh, a leaky gut model. So um, I, I always, you know, and I always warn people, you know, they say, oh, I want to have my steak with some hot sauce. And I think that's not a good idea, you know. <laughs> and we know, you know, in, in the functional medicine world, the term leaky gut gets thrown about a lot. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what could be causing that as well. And I think that definitely the solanaceae, the nightshade vegetables could be contributing. Yeah, and talking about leaky gut, I mean, that's intestinal permeability. And I was at the recent um, carnivore conference in um, in Boulder, Colorado, and that was a huge topic there. About, really? Yeah, so that was, yeah, yeah. that was definitely some, and as you were saying, you know, even in functional medicine, a lot of this when it comes to diet, it all starts in the guts and saying, well, there must be something wrong with people's guts, which is triggering this autoimmune condition, which is triggering this inflammatory cascade of events. And so which diet, what type of nutrition is going to help soothe the intestinal right. permeability here? Um, so, and again, bringing this back into functional medicine, I know a lot of the time there's certain like um, smoothies or green mixes that people would ingest to right. try help this. And in this case here, again, coming with your background, it may be actually, no, don't have the smoothie to help your, your gut right now. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I know Sophia Clemens and the group at Paleo Medicina have done a lot of great work about uh, leaky gut and their stuff on what they would call the paleolithic ketogenic diet, which is essentially synonymous with the nose to tail carnivore diet. So they call it PKD or paleolithic ketogenic diet, which is, it sounds like a paleo diet and a keto diet, but it's actually a whole foods animal-based diet. So it's the same thing. And they have been able to show using, I think it's PEG 400 resolution or um, improvement or, you know, full reversal of leaky gut with that type of a diet, which really, like we're saying, kind of flies in the face of many functional medicine ideas or ideals around this, this concept that perhaps some of these plants are causing an issue here, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's get into the nose and tail part a little bit here. So as you, as you've said earlier, just having only lean or I know we'll get into fat in a little bit, but just lean meats and water is not ideal in, in your view. Um, what's, what would start when we're talking like even nose here, like what other elements of animal-based protein would you say people need to incorporate and for what reasons? So if we think about our ancestors, which is, you know, we do the best we can. I'm not an anthropologist. I kind of wish I'd studied more anthropology in college, but everything I've read about indigenous cultures and everything we record now about hunter-gatherer tribes and everything we see from every animal sort of 
in, you know, in the wild is that they don't just eat the muscle meat. In fact, often they, they, they exclude the muscle meat, you know, in favor of the organs or in favor of the, whatever they can get to that's fatty or, you know, more nutrient dense in other ways. They often will eat muscle meat, but they don't eat the muscle meat exclusively. And I think that our ancestors very likely were eating, and there's good evidence, they were eating the whole animal nose to tail. And so the idea is that the muscle meat is just a portion of this, and there are all the organs that we need to eat, and we can talk about what nutrients are in the muscle meat versus nutrients that are in the organs. If we look, the muscle meat is rich in a subset of nutrients, and the organ meats, especially liver, are complementary. It's, you know, this is probably the worst um, you know, analogy ever, but it's kind of like peanut butter and jelly in a way, you know, they're, they're quite complementary. you know, like if you look at muscle meat, muscle meat is high in B6, muscle meat is high in, you know, certain amino acids. But if you're looking just at the B vitamins, there are complementary B vitamins in the liver and to the muscle meat. And so to get the full complement of B vitamins, whether it's thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, pyridoxine, pantothenic acid, folate, B12, biotin, we have to eat muscle meat and liver. You couldn't just eat liver because you might not get enough of certain things. And then if you look at the iron and copper equation, which is interesting, um, the, there's, there's quite a bit of iron in muscle meat, uh, or zinc, I should have said. Zinc and copper are often co-competing, and there's quite a bit of zinc in muscle meat, but not a lot of copper. And if we just eat the muscle meat at the exclusion of the liver, we'll, we'll probably get copper deficient. One of the ways that our body protects us from copper uh, excess is by putting the zinc and the copper into the same cells in the intestinal tract. And so if we eat a lot of zinc without a concomitant amount of copper, then we will slough those cells and get copper deficient. And we know that copper deficiency is a big deal. Clinically, it mimics B12 deficiency with neurologic symptoms. So if we, if we look, whether we're looking at minerals or B vitamins, there are often complementary minerals and B vitamins in the liver versus the muscle meat. So that's just one example of sort of organ meats, specifically liver, and muscle meat, that if we don't eat the liver and we're eating muscle meat, we're going to run into problems in terms of nutritional deficiencies long-term. And so <clears throat> if we're thinking in terms of uh, timelines, which is interesting, most people, and this, this is quite a fascinating concept to me, most people can sustain a diet, almost any diet, for two years or three years. But I fear that in the future, we will, in the next couple of years, we will start to see people who are eating carnivore with only meat-based diets, without the organ meats or the connective tissue, which we can talk about. There's complementary amino acids in muscle meat and connective tissue, that's methionine and glycine. But I fear that people who are only eating muscle meat may have had improvements originally, but will, may have uh, problems with nutritional deficiencies after the two to three year event horizon. So, I mean, probably the most well-known person in this category would be like Jordan Peterson. You know, I worry that, you know, that, that he's gonna run into issues with this. So yeah, it takes about two to three years to develop that deficiency. And, you know, interestingly, this is what we see in vegans as well. The vegan diet has been helpful for people individually for um, all sorts of things. But what we see long-term is that at two to three years, they often develop nutritional deficiencies. And that's the same thing that I worry about with carnivore, that, that that's coming soon, that in the last two years, it's become so much more popular. People are going to start getting nutritional deficiencies and there's going to be a real backlash because we are not as a whole promoting this nose to tail idea mm -hmm. and yeah that's a, <clears throat> a great topic there because um i've had dr clemens on before and she does that you know um, in hungary they push a lot of uh, organ-based products too to get mm -hmm. that full spectrum and what what um again tying in with your functional medicine because in functional medicine you um 
you like to do a lot of blood tests and check parameters and look for ratios yeah. and everything like that. And they seem to do the same thing, thing in Hungary where they're looking at a lot of nutrient values and seeing that actually it's all within reference ranges here. And I think that is going to be fascinating to see two to three years from now if um, you may find certain people who are on an all-meat-based diet that if they excluded certain types of foods uh, like organ foods, are they are there ratios or certain parameters from a functional medicine point of view not in in a reference range that you'd like to see and i actually your copper one was fascinating to me there so if you have a copper deficiency that could mimic the neurological effects of a b12 deficiency it looks the same clinically it's so, a fairly fairly severe problem copper can be toxic in excess but it's like so many things right especially the minerals like selenium uh or these are you know they're they're toxic in deficiency and toxic in excess zinc it's hard to get deficient. It's hard to get a, a toxicity of excess zinc. Excess zinc deficiency is copper deficiency because of the mechanism I explained in the intestines. So too much zinc doesn't seem to be problematic, except that it will cause a copper deficiency. So when we supplement zinc, we always have to supplement copper with it. And it, this is sort of the, the way that it's all sort of tied in our bodies in this kind of beautiful symmetry that if we're eating the whole animal, we and this is kind of the, the neat thing and how it's all it all kind of makes sense and it starts to really look quite um quite well designed you know or just it, it's, it's so interesting the way that it all the way it all fits together but if you eat the whole animal and we can talk about other aspects of nose to tail eating you tend to see that from a medical perspective if you reverse engineer it you're getting all the things you need in like really good ratios too you're getting the zinc and the copper right which is crazy it's like wow that's i guess it makes sense you know because an animal looks a lot more like a human than you know it, it's pretty much you know if if you could design, I talked about this on their podcast, if you could design the, the ideal multivitamin for a human, it would be a whole animal, you know, it would a whole animal based multivitamin just because animals are made of all the same things humans are. Our plants are very different looking than us. Yeah. No, I just, it, again, when you brought that up, this would be a whole other concept to consider. <laughs> I know some uh, vegans or vegetarians might jump on this now because uh, carnival people say, oh, but if you're vegan or vegetarian, oh, especially vegan, uh, you have to supplement B12. Now vegans are going to go, oh, if you're just a lean meat eating carnivore, you're going to have to start supplementing copper because um, you're going to develop a copper deficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, I mean, but they would be right. You know, they would be right. But if you eat nose to tail or if you're eating the whole animal, I believe, and this is one of the things that's interesting to me, I believe you, you probably don't need supplementation. Everyone is going to come to a functional medicine physician or any physician trying to get to the root cause of an illness with a set of like baseline parameters. So when I see someone in the beginning some people may need supplementation, you know, if they're very deficient in something from their past. But I think that, you know, indi there's individual variation in terms of absorption of various things. But generally, if you're eating a whole foods animal-based diet, that is nose-to-tail carnivore diet, like you're getting pretty much everything you need, you know, it's pretty, you shouldn't need a whole lot of supplementation. And I would argue, <clears throat> in contrast, if you are eating a uh, a whole foods plant-based diet, quote unquote, you need a lot of supplementation and meticulous construction of your diet. I don't, you know, I, I know I don't want it to go down the whole like vegan bashing road, but if you look at plant-based diets, there are only two places or three places in the entire plant kingdom where there's any zinc, you know, there's really not much riboflavin at all. You know, if we look at them, like you, people will get deficient in these things unless they supplement, which to me suggests you know, that this is not sustainable and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for humans to eat this way. I know people eat plant-based diets for a variety of reasons, often not for health. Um, and I certainly have to respect people eating, you know, any way they want for an ethical reason. But um, in terms of nutritional 
sustainability, if you look at plant-based diets, it's very hard to construct a plant-based diet with all the things you need. And there's just not a lot of places. And even when you get zinc, like in pumpkin seeds, it's not very well absorbed because of all the phytic acid. Mm-hmm. So with your residency in psychiatry, um, is a diet used as a primary tool to help psychiatry patients right now? Not in terms of mainstream medicine, no. <laughs> but I've, I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen it be helpful. I often recommend it to my patients kind of as an aside. And, um, I, within my residency, which I'll be finishing in a couple months, um, I don't often recommend a carnivore diet because it's so radical for people, but I have seen ketogenic diets or low carb diets be quite helpful for people in that context. It's a little more approachable for people. So I think that this idea that I think, I hope that traditional medicine comes around to this idea that diet can be a very powerful intervention, but it gets to a lot of themes underlying all of this. I think that when people arrive at a physician's office and they're not seeking that physician out and they're using insurance, their level of motivation and readiness for change is going to be quite variable. And so I think that unfortunately many physicians feel kind of, you know, under the gun in, in this sense that they, you know, people don't want to change their diet. That, I mean, 95% of people don't want to change their diet. And if they're coming to a traditionally trained Western MD, they're coming to them expecting medications. So the system kind of perpetuates itself, unfortunately, which is the nice thing about functional medicine, that when someone goes to see a functional medicine physician, they're often seeking that person out. And they have in their mind this idea, they have the sense, they've realized that diet is super important and they're going to look for dietary recommendations. But in terms of mainstream medicine, it's kind of a foreign concept for both patients and physicians. Yeah. I'm just thinking uh, this, I, I can see potentially some, um, some people experimenting with patients in the future going, right, here's your medication to help with the acute sy- um, symptoms that you're going through right now. But let's get an underlying base going at the same time because I'm just using uh, some of the examples that I came across at that conference too, where people within days sometimes can notice depression lift and other psychiatric things. And it's incredible to think that was just, who knows again, is it the inflammatory cascade that we're talking about? What was happening here that within days of someone going on an all meat type diet or animal based protein diet, that they get resolution in these neurological symptoms, these, you know, these psychiatric kind of um, symptoms that are going on. So, um, yeah, fascinating times when it comes to that and brain it health, is, I think. It is. It really is. And like I said, I think that many, not all, but I think many psychiatric illnesses are neuroinflammatory. And that, like I said, that was really what grabbed my attention originally. Like, whoa, this works for people, especially because, you know, like training in psychiatry specifically right now, it's, it's hard when I see people with depression that's recalcitrant or very pervasive anxiety. And, you know, the, the, the mood benefits of this type of diet are perhaps some of the most striking ones out there. It's, it's on par with all the autoimmune diseases. If you look on websites like meatheals.com, which is Sean Baker's collection of people to tell their stories, there is a large collection of people who had improvements in mental health. I think it's the second or the largest category. There's probably over a hundred stories now. If you look at the by category, you know, the mental health stuff is perhaps some of the most represented. That may be an artifact from the fact that mental health is pervasive and mo- it's very common for people to have mental health issues, but certainly we're seeing that in a very strong way. Yeah, and also mental health comes with pain. So if someone's in a chronic pain syndrome, they're going to be depressed about their body. Um, they're not going to be happy with situations. And so when you're getting a resolution in symptoms, be it your skin, your joint pain, whatever, I, uh, I also think it's going to have an upliftment in your mood. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I'd like to get into then talking about brain health and neurological stuff. And 
tying in nutrients. What about omega-3 ratios to omega-6 ratios and, and animal-based foods? So this is another piece of the kind of the nose-to-tail idea that <clears throat> most people who have experimented with omega-3 fatty acid supplementation will, will report, at least anecdotally, that they feel better, um, whether it's clearer thinking or better mood, when they have a decent amount of omega-3 in their diet relative to omega-6. And this is kind of a rabbit hole, but we can go down it. Um, the type of both omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are essential fatty acids for humans. But we know, and people have talked about this in the past, like Tucker Goodrich, that processed omega-6 uh, fatty acids, specifically linoleic acid, or linolenic, excuse me, no, linoleic, um, that, that, that seems to be connected. If we look epidemiologically, the um, excess linoleic, linoleic acid syndrome, which is kind of this idea of like excess omega-6 in the diet coming from seed oils, there are some quite compelling ideas that that may be associated with systemic inflammation and the, uh, the appearance of insulin resistance. So it appears that for humans, we probably should be getting a certain ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 in our diet. And the source of omega-6 is important, just like the source of omega-3 is important. So you know, animal foods have omega-6, but what we see generally is that wild animal foods, pasture-raised animal foods have, have a higher ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. And then Grain-fed animals tend to have a little more omega-6 to omega-3. But this kind of circles back to the idea of nose-to-tail eating, that I think it's important for people to have a good source of omega-3 in their diet to complement the omega-6. Everyone's going to get omega-6. Everyone's going to get linoleic acid, which can then be converted to gamma-linolenic acid and all these precursors, arachidonic, all these subsequent compounds, arachidonic acid in this cascade in the human body. So everybody's going to get enough of linoleic acid from uh, meat or other things in their diet. But um, but a lot of people don't get enough omega-3, and that would be my, one of my issues with a, a, a primarily meat-based carnivorous diet, is you don't have a really good omega-3 source. But if we look at the whole animal, where are the sources of omega-3? It's often the brain, you know, or seafood, um, or egg yolks, and which are not technically part of an animal. But um, in, in terms of a carnivorous diet, those would be better sources, specifically of DHA, which is the main one, because I, uh, we can retroconvert DHA to EPA, which are part of the omega-3 lineage. So I think this is important that people should not just eat meat. They need a good omega-3 source. My favorite source of omega-3 is salmon roe. I think that people are quickly associating salmon roe with me. <laughs> they, people are always asking me where I get salmon roe. But I love salmon roe because it's a phospholipid DHA, meaning that it's a DHA molecule in the phospholipid form, uh, which is contrasted to the ethyl ester or the triglyceride form of um, DHA or EPA, which are the ones you commonly find in supplements. I believe that krill oil is also a phospholipid-derived DHA, but what we see is that the phospholipid-derived DHA or EPA crosses the blood-brain barrier a little easier, and that's what we often want, is we want the brain health, like you're suggesting. We want these omega-3 fatty acids to cross the blood-brain barrier well. You can still get omega-3 fatty acids into your brain if it's fish oil, but the salmon roe appears to be a great source of phospholipid-derived DHA, which will cross the blood-brain barrier more readily, at least what we, from what we've seen in experimental studies. People could also eat salmon, um, or things like this, but I, I'm, I'd have to do the, I'd have to confirm it, but I don't think in salmon that it's the phospholipid form of DHA that I could look. Um, so, but people do need an omega-3 source in their diet, and I think they generally feel better. This gets to the idea that in functional medicine, we would check what's called the omega-3 index, which is basically uh, a ratio or a sum. It's more, it's a sum total of the, um, the EPA and DHA of all the omega-3s, you know, in, in someone's body. And, and we, we generally talk in functional medicine. I don't think anybody really knows. Most of this is hypothetical or at least 
um, a lot of guesswork. But clinically, it seems that people do better when the omega-3 index is 6, 8, even 10. I've seen it as high as 13. And some of my clients who eat lots of sardines and cod liver and salmon roe. So I think 6 is probably too low. 8 is getting to be pretty good. Um, it's pretty rare to see it above 8. But um, it seems that when um, the omega-3 index is is lower, people are, are not doing as well, just cognitively, all these things. So we have to think about where our omega-3 source is coming from. And again, that requires nose-to-tail eating. If you're thinking about an animal that you've hunted, it probably would be in the brain. And there's a lot of theories about human evolution suggesting that perhaps it was our ability to crack open skulls. It's a little bit gross to people because it's culturally not something we're familiar with. But, you know, there are many indigenous cultures that eat the brains of animals. It's often considered to be a delicacy, much like liver. So there are all these traditions of people who appreciate the fact that liver, organ meats, brains, these are crucial to human survival. They're very unique foods. But yeah, it probably was our ability to crack open the skulls of animals and eat the brain after other animals had scavenged. You know, they many times, you know, in our evolution, probably other animals couldn't crack open a skull, but humans might've figured that out. That's one of the theories that we figured that out and we got access to the brain and that might've been a huge role in the development of our uh, increasing size of our brains uh, as that rich DHA source. There's lots of theories about how we became the humans we are today, but that's one of the ones. Yeah, and when we're talking about this, it just gets me thinking too, because people go, oh, do I need to eat brain every day then, for example? But I guess traditionally humans wouldn't have access to brain every day because they would have done a hunt and a kill and they would have feasted on it maybe once or twice a week, potentially, depending how many kills that they had that that week. But it's not a daily thing that you would have to do. But as long as you're getting something, would you say every week, like some sort of organ meat is important then every week? Yeah. And then you get into ratios and how much you actually want. But yeah, it seems like it seems like I would recommend people that they get organ meat every week, that they get an omega-3 source every week, and that they work with whoever from a functional medicine perspective or whoever can, you know, do their blood work and kind of monitor them and check the omega-3 index and say, oh, maybe you could use a little more omega-3 mm-hmm. or, you know, check their other blood work and make sure that, you know, they're getting enough riboflavin or other B vitamins that might be more specifically concentrated in the liver depending um, on all those things. Yeah. Here's an interesting clinical challenge for you. Um, so at the carnival conference, some people brought up uh, an issue of dry skin at times when they go on a carnival diet, and they were link. And some theory was going around. I believe it was to do with a certain B vitamin. Have you ever come across that, or in functional medicine, have you ever heard of people who are deficient in, a, in any particular type of B vitamin getting dry skin, particularly on the end, end of their fingertips, maybe? Um, I wonder riboflavin. Perhaps it would depend on. Um it would depend on how much people were eating, but riboflavin is is interesting. You know, Chris Masterjohn did a good series on his podcast recently about riboflavin and perhaps the evidence for benefits much above the RDA. And if you look at carnivorous diets, depending how much meat you're eating, you know, liver is more concentrated in riboflavin than muscle meat. But um, I think it would be interesting to look at those people. I I've never experienced that, but. Um, I think it's certainly an indication that there's some deficiency there. And that would would be so interesting to kind of dig in and be like, are you eating liver? Like, you know, what's going on here? That would be my first thought. Maybe riboflavin. Um, I mean, there's a pretty good amount of folate in liver too. But if you look at the muscle meat, there's almost, there's very little folate. Um, So it could be a folate deficiency depending on how the people are eating. So yeah, I wonder. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, this is just a part of the, um, the learning process that we're going through right now. As you said, you know, two to three years down the line when people are eating and then we may start discovering certain things in, in maybe a subset of people. Um, let's, let's talk about collagen now and why you're such a fan that people have to get collagen. 
Yeah, this is super interesting. So if we look at the amino acid profile of muscle meat, it's quite high in methionine, which is a methyl source for our bodies. And in the folate cycle, which is kind of complicated, homocysteine gets converted to methionine and then methionine becomes S-adenosylmethionine and S-adenosylmethionine or SAMe acts as a methyl donor in over 300 reactions elsewhere in the body. So, you know, methionine is an important amino acid, but the excess of methionine and excess methyl groups are sort of, um, the body has this stopgap or this, in the folate cycle, the body also uses sort of the complementary amino acid to methionine, which is glycine to deal with excess muscle groups. So when you're eating a high methionine diet, you need to make sure that you have lots of glycine in your diet as well. And this is sort of the beautiful parallel that we're seeing in other things like copper and zinc or the complementary B vitamins and different organ meats. Like there are these complementary nutrients in humans that's just part of our physiology. And it, it, it's neat that it all fits together if we eat the whole animal, but this is where collagen comes in. So muscle meat is high in methionine, but there's very little glycine. So collagen is all of the connective tissue in our body, whether it's bones, hair, skin, nails, tendons, ligaments. So those are the parts that have more collagen, and there's different types of collagen, and collagen is generally three amino acids, one of which is uh, glycine, one of which is also proline. But collagen is the best source of glycine. It's really one of the only sources of glycine. I mean, there's a little bit of glycine in muscle meat, but not much. But if you want to get collagen, or excuse me, if you want to get glycine from an animal, you have to eat the connective tissue. And this is something I think is very evolutionarily consistent. I definitely think our ancestors would have eaten the whole animal. It's like if you eat nose to tail and you eat all the connective tissue, whether it's like tendons and ligaments and bones, you know, you're getting the collagen from which you will derive glycine. And that helps to really balance this methionine glycine ratio. And that has to do with things like the folate cycle, things like, uh, like that. And this came up on our, another recent podcast I did with Ben Greenfield, where in experiments in rats, what they have found is that the rat longevity increases when they restrict methionine. And then that's where these ideas around oh, protein restriction results in increased longevity came from. But what they also found was that they had a similar increase in longevity when they supplemented the rats with glycine. So that it was really what came out of this was that excess methionine syndrome seems to shorten animals' lives. And that it's not so much about the restriction of methionine as it is about the methionine-glycine ratio, at least in rodents and perhaps also in humans. I believe it's similar in humans. So it's this idea that like notions that animal protein or methionine shorten lives is those are not founded. It's just the context that we need that methionine-glycine ratio. You know, there's all this, even within the functional medicine sphere, there's all of these sort of misconceptions that animal protein ages us. You know, I've heard people say that. What are you talking about? Like, that's crazy. It doesn't age us. Like, and I think that's a misconception of this idea that excess methionine syndrome has been shown to um, shorten the lives of, of rodents in, in animal models. But when glycine is supplemented, when that methionine-glycine ratio is normalized or improved, things really improve markedly. So that's why I'm such a fan of collagen. I use, you know, um, <clears throat> hydrolyzed collagen powder or sometimes directly supplement glycine. Um, but that's, that's sort of my intention. I prefer the collagen powder because then I'm getting the other amino acids in, in collagen, specifically the proline, and I'm kind of balancing out the amino acid ratios. So people listening to this potentially will want to know, is there a way to test that they have too much methionine? Um, is there any, is there anything that they can do? Uh, it would be fairly complicated. If you wanted to work with a functional medicine practitioner, there are some labs, specifically a lab from HDRI, so Health Diagnostics Research Institute, that's quite extensive 
uh, a sampling of all the folate cycle components, but there are also many um, amino acid profiles that you can do through companies like Genova that'll look at um, urinary and uh, serum uh, plasma amino acids, and you can see if you're having too much amino, too much methionine, and then you could also see uh, if you, um, in the plasma at least, if the glycine is insufficient. And then if you, what we generally see when glycine is insufficient is that we get a deficiency in glutathione. So there, these are these two interesting molecules in the human body, the first of which is collagen, which is three amino acids. But glutathione is also three amino acids. It's different amino acids than collagen, but one of those amino acids in glutathione, often the, um, the most uh, limiting amino acid in the human body is glycine. And so there are a variety of ways to look and see if you are glycine deficient. And that would probably be the main thing. It's it's, it's often not that people are getting too much methionine, it's that they're glycine deficient. And that would re be reflected in, you can either do you know, organic acid testing and look for things like pyroglutamate, which suggests that uh, glutathione is not being um, made properly, or you can look at directly, you can look at glutathione levels. It's a little bit difficult sometimes to differentiate depending on the test, oxidized versus reduced glutathione. Um, but uh, people can also look directly at glycine levels and you know, measures of oxidative stress and um, make sure they're making enough glutathione because that would be sort of the one of the main issues. You wouldn't necessarily know if you weren't making enough collagen, but you can directly measure glutathione. This is this master antioxidant in a human body. Yeah, again, I love this idea where you can even customize your animal-based protein diet, you know, where you could even get so nuanced with your own physiology. And that's what this whole show is about, N equals one, and, you know, we're all unique. And then yeah. you may find, hey, in your case right now, where your state of health is, you need to eat a lot more uh, collagen um, just to get you back to this level to get the change that we're looking for here. Yep. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, other nutrients then, um, you've talked about boron and actually, sorry, we, we, the one good thing that we forgot to talk about was iodine. That's something you brought up before. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, iodine was a big topic, I think a few years ago when everyone was talking about thyroid. Uh, mm -hmm. so when, when people have a thyroid issue, and so many people in this world do have a thyroid issue. Would you say an animal-based um, protein diet is a good option for those people? Absolutely. You just have to think about your iodine source on the animal-based diet. Um, and again, this is a problem with muscle meat. If you just eat muscle meat, there's not a lot of iodine in muscle meat. It's concentrated in places like the thyroid or <clears throat> egg yolks or seafood. So you have to think about where the iodine is coming from in the animal that you're eating and where, make sure you're getting enough. There are, you know, there's hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism, but generally, you know, historically in indigenous cultures, what we generally saw was goiter, you know, these images of men and women with these very large necks due to hype, due to inadequate iodine um, in the diet. And, you know, now we can get people with Graves disease, which is a an adenomatous condition, which can excrete extra thyroid hormone, that's going to cause hyperthyroidism. But goiter is generally caused by inadequate iodine. And then you can get developmental issues like cretinism. You know, it's very important for pregnant women to have adequate iodine, because if, if they don't, then the, the fetus can develop um, cretinism and all these issues. So yeah, it's important for people to understand, like they need an iodine source in their diet. Um, and muscle meat is not going to provide a lot of that. Egg yolks too. I mean, most people on the carnivore diet do meat and egg yolks, so they'll probably be okay. But if you're just eating muscle meat, you can really develop an iodine deficiency. And again, seafood will give you iodine too. So if you're eating some eggs or some seafood, you'll, you'll get um, adequate iodine. We don't need a ton. We only need probably 150 to 200 micrograms a day. 
and I'm, I'm not a fan of this hyper supplementation of iodine, but um, certainly if people wanted to, they could also eat seaweed or something that would give them iodine. Um, but uh, if you're thinking about an animal-based diet, you need to know where your iodine is coming from as well. That could be a pretty big long-term problem. Yeah, that's what I was thinking there, especially again, if some say someone's already on medication, um, yeah, and and of course, when people are on chronic medication, they're always looking to say, can my diet get me off this medication? Can I fix this? Right. Um, and I guess that's what's going to be interesting for listeners here is if they are suffering those conditions you just mentioned and they're trying to think, I'm going to eat, say, a carnivorous diet to try and get off this thyroid medication, is that even possible for them? You know, it depends what's causing the thyroid issue, right? Most people, not everyone, but many people now have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which leads to hypothyroidism, but that's an autoimmune condition. And so in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the body uh, reacts against the thyroid and starts to destroy thyroid cells. So this goes back into the realm of like autoimmunity. It's pretty rare that, that humans today are iodine deficient because we have iodized salt things like this, you know, it's pretty common that we're getting enough iodine, whether we're eating a mixed diet, even a standard American diet, people are not getting, you know, iodine deficiency. But um, if people have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that's a whole different thing. And that's what most people have who are hypothyroid these days. And that's an autoimmune condition, which I, I would argue could potentially be improved by a carnivorous diet. I was actually just interacting with some people the other day on my Instagram and hearing about their stories with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And there definitely seem to be people whose Hashimoto's does improve when they cut out plants. Again, we're all quite individual, but I think that while we're on the topic of iodine, and we'll just mention sulforaphane because I think this is so interesting. <clears throat> it goes back to the broccoli sprouts idea. So everyone imagines these days, and you know, Rhonda Patrick is pushing broccoli sprouts or broccoli seeds as like this amazing thing, but this goes back to the idea of plant toxins. So sulforaphane is a compound that's derived from glucoraphanin when it's acted on, upon by the enzyme myrosinase. Glucoraphanin, sulforaphane, these compounds belong to a family of compounds called glucosinolates or isothiocyanates. And what we know is that these compounds probably do act as hormetics in the human body by triggering the NRF2 pathway and thereby increasing glutathione production. But what's my issue with plant compounds that are hormetics is that they often have collateral damaging effects. And I would argue this is the main issue with sulforaphane. And I think this is a big problem for people is that in addition to triggering hormesis, which may be a good thing, there are many things that can trigger hormesis outside of the plant kingdom. We can do that in many ways in our lives. We don't need plants for adequate glutathione. But in addition to triggering hormesis and increased glutathione, sulforaphane also is absorbed and circulates in the human body before it's detoxified. And it competes with iodine for absorption at the level of the thyroid. So people eating lots of broccoli sprouts can definitely develop hypothyroidism because of iodine insufficiency at the level of the thyroid in the blood. This is not just that sulforaphane is going to block iodine absorption in the gut, but sulforaphane is part of this family of compounds, the isothiocyanates that um, are goitrogens. They are goiter producing agents, even in the human body. And so I think this this push toward brassica vegetables is pretty dangerous for people. And I think there are many people out there who are suffering from hypothyroidism due to um, now inadequate iodine production or inadequate iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid, which would be a different condition than Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But I think that's really important too. And again, to me, that would argue, don't do sulforaphane. It's actually a plant toxin. You know, There are plenty of ways to get adequate glutathione without sulforaphane. It is not all it's cracked up to be. 
Um, yeah, again, this is, I love these topics because it's so yin and yang, maybe from the functional medicine world where you'd say, no, this seems to be really good. And then here comes the other side of it uh, to say, well, maybe not. <laughs> exactly. And that's the pattern. I, I, I love patterns and I like seeing things. I think, I think I'm a big picture kind of guy and I like seeing patterns. And, you know, as I've delved more into the world of carnivore, what I've seen, you know, on the flip side in terms of the plant kingdom is that the pattern seems to be that there may be some plant molecules that have benefit if we just focus on the benefit, whether we're talking about resveratrol or sulforaphane. But if we really look at the whole picture, which is not something that's often represented because it's not in the best interest of supplement companies, these plant molecules often have collaterally damaging effects because they're not part of a normal human operating system. They're, it's really like MAC and PC. Like These are plant molecules. They don't directly participate in human biochemistry at all. They can have, they can have effects they can have hormetic effects or, you know, resveratrol appears to activate sirtuins, but there are many things we can uh, do to our bodies, specifically ketosis that also activates their sirtuin gene pathway, which is a family of genes that's been associated with longevity. So it's not a unique effect. And then it has collateral damage because it's a foreign molecule and it ends up circulating in the human body and often causing issues in other places. But if we just focus on the fact, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase the sirtuin gene system. Yeah, it's great. And then it's become a I mean, I think resveratrol might be a $20 billion industry now, and so fluorophane is comparable, which is just scary. I think, wow, that's, that's crazy, you know? I mean, it's very good for the bottom line of the supplement manufacturers. And um, I think that as westernized humans, I mean, I would say it's sad, but I think that we have created this culture where we're looking for a pill to fix things, whether it's in the natural space or in the, the traditional space. And um, people, you know, may want to take sulforaphane to live longer, but these molecules are not part of normal human physiology and they often have these collaterally damaging effects. You know, resveratrol has been shown to activate the immune system in potentially damaging ways and could even trigger autoimmunity. I think there's evidence that resveratrol affects T helper 17 uh, cell populations in the human body, which wouldn't be surprising because our body's not seen this molecule before. Yeah. So yeah, when you go to a longevity conference or an anti-aging conference, <laughs> you, you could bring in a whole other aspect again of where people have been purposely avoiding animal-based proteins because of fear that they're not going to live longer because if they get exposed to it. But you're, it's this quality of life aspect too that we're bringing into it. Yeah, I think I'm going to be at A4M uh, this December. And I think that I'm going to have some interesting, I don't know if I'll be speaking, but I think I'll be, I'll have some interesting conversations with people there. I I think we're really trying hard to hack longevity and the equation is probably more simple and less costly than we're making it. I, you know, it appears that occasional ketosis, occasional, you know, maybe long-term and, you know, but it appears that ketones have a longevity promoting effect and without other collaterally damaging issues, you know, and, and then I would say glycine, bamethionine, glycine balance, you know, just living a healthy life. And then I think that the, probably the most, uh, effective things we can do in terms of longevity would be sun, you know, ultraviolet light, community, exercise, just the easy stuff. But that doesn't sell, that doesn't make anyone $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very true. You know, it's the simple things in life and you just got to get the foundational stuff right. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. So um, I didn't get to also touch on another really important aspect of this is the protein and fat ratio. Um mm -hmm. So that's something else that potentially I do also believe I see an issue sometimes where people may not get enough animal-based fat when they're having um, meat, that they have too much lean meat. Um, yes. what, what are your thoughts on this? I totally agree with you. You know, I think it depends on 
body composition goals. But what we know about human metabolism is that humans can run on two types of fuel. And the two types of fuel are carbohydrate and fat. We don't really run the engine of human biochemistry on protein. We can burn a little bit of it, but we generally use it for building blocks. But there are mm, described conditions like rabbit starvation and Arctic explorers who could only kill and eat lean, small animals. Like, I don't know exactly what they were eating. I imagine it was like rats or, you know, small animals squirrels, they don't have any fat on them, and, and rabbits, you know, presumably. But if you just eat rabbits, you will die. Um, because biochemically, you cannot really do human biochemistry. Our engine doesn't run on protein. We need fat or carbohydrate. And there are all sorts of arguments that would say, oh, eating, eating, using fat as your uh, fuel has these benefits. This is this, you know, this keto movement, which I think is really cool, becoming fat adapted. But humans can use carbohydrates. And I think we have throughout human history, perhaps especially during starvation times or when animals were not as available. But yes, people who are doing meat-based diets, whole foods, animal-based diets, well, perhaps if they're doing this, they're not doing a whole foods, animal-based diet. But if you're just eating meat and it's all lean meat, you don't give your body fat, your body won't run well. What it will do is it will digest your fat first. So if there is an intention toward weight loss, I think you can adjust this fat to protein ratio. I would never do anything with zero fat. But if people are trying to lose weight, they could eat more protein and less fat. If people are trying to perform or maintain their body composition, they're going to need to have a decent amount of fat in their diet because that is the fuel the engine will run on. People often message me on Instagram and say they're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or um, high-intensity activities, and they say, oh, I don't feel as good. And I often say, like, how much fat are you eating? And they're not eating enough, or they feel better when they incorporate more fat. So if people are trying to lose weight, I would probably recommend doing this under the supervision of a medical provider, but you could eat a diet that's higher in protein and less in fat. You might imagine something like 70-30 or 80-20 in terms of protein to fat macros, gram for gram. So 70, you know, 70 grams of protein for every 30 grams of fat, you know, scaled. And that might be a macro ratio that would lead to more fat loss because you probably wouldn't get enough fat to make your metabolism go and your body could go into ketosis and burn your own fat for weight loss. But if people are trying to perform, I push them more toward like a 50-50 macro in terms of grams and it's variable, but that tends to be what I end up with in my diet is I'll eat about 50% protein and 50% fat. There is a small amount of carbohydrate in meat. I think only like 10 grams a day when I'm eating, you know, two and a half, three pounds of meat a day, but I will always add fat to my meat because it's not fatty enough. Even if I'm getting like a really fatty ribeye, I often will add a little bit of tallow to it to adjust the macros of the fat. But I think that for humans, we are going to feel best in terms of performance and maintenance of our weight and body composition when we have a decent amount of fat, whether it's 60-40 protein to fat or 50-50 protein to fat macros by grams. Um, I know the folks at Paleo Medicina often push a little further than that. They want a lot of fat Mm -hmm. um, to get the fully, to get even more ketogenic, but and people could do that. If people, uh, if people wanted to push more toward a ketogenic realm, although I would argue that an animal-based diet is going to be ketogenic, um, uh, people wanted to see their ketones higher. I don't know. There's any evidence suggesting that's really beneficial. They could do more fat and less protein, yeah. even beyond 50, 50, they could do like 30, 70, you know, or 40, 70. But I think for a lot of people, the the problem with that, and this is the problem I have with some ketogenic diets, is that fat doesn't have a lot of micronutrients. 
So we're talking about macronutrients and micronutrients. And the fat doesn't have a lot of micronutrients. It's the, it's the other things. It's the protein. It's the liver. Whether we're talking collagen or muscle meat or liver or you know fish eggs, that is where the micronutrients are. Um, if we're just eating tallow or ghee or butter, I'm not a huge fan of dairy. There's not a lot of micronutrients in there. There's really not many B vitamins in butter. I mean, maybe you could argue that grass-fed butter has vitamin K2, but you're, you're, people can get vitamin deficiencies if they have too much fat in their diet. So it just gets back to this idea that it's very individual and we can't do exclusively fat. I think if people are just walking around all day trying to be in ketosis, they're just drinking butter and tallow, you'll definitely be in ketosis and you won't die right away, but you will get nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking here, so, some, so if someone wanted to really su supercharge themselves, they could get um, some organ-based meats like a liver and just put some fat on it too, just to really ramp it up. So you're getting a, a big whack of like a, a animal-based multivitamin in one shot with your fat yes. at the same time if you, yeah, if you yeah. needed to. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be great. Yeah. I think that if, <clears throat> I mean, it's interesting, I think, to think about parallels with animals. You know, a, a lot of people have dogs and they love their dogs. And I have some clients that feed their dogs just, they just feed their dogs raw food and it's just ground up animal, but it's ground up cow, but it's the whole cow, you know? It's not just the muscle meat because they know they'll get deficient. And there's anecdotes of zoo animals, lions being fed only muscle meat. And then when they add, and they didn't, they stopped reproducing probably because of vitamin A deficiency, but lions have a little bit different physiology than humans. But if we don't eat the liver, we will get vitamin A deficient as well. I mean, that's one of the other nutrients we didn't even talk about. But um, when they added the organs back to the lions in captivity, they started reproducing again and everything was great, which makes sense, right? But if people will notice if people are feeding their dogs raw food or they're feeding their dogs whole ground food, they feed them. the animal, the whole animal ground up. It has the bones, it has the liver, it has everything, it has the skin and that... That to me, the reason I mentioned that is because that to me is like the ideal multivitamin. If you could just, I mean, this, I don't want this to sound morbid. I'm just thinking academically or just theoretically. Like if you could just make, if you could just encapsulate a whole animal, that would be a multivitamin, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, so with the, with the, the, uh, the vitamins, with the vitamins, um, that is also something that always comes up is are you not going to be deficient in like your a's your c's those kind of things and from a functional medicine point of view do you do you see that being a problem i don't um so vitamin a is an interesting one in plant foods we have the carotenoids which are the precursors to vitamin a but a lot of people don't even convert those well to vitamin a we don't use the carotenoids directly in human biochemistry we use retinol form of vitamin a which we can convert into a few different forms of vitamin A. But if you look at animal meats, especially liver, it has the, it has the retinol form of vitamin A in it, which is the most you know, usable form by the human organism. And so definitely don't think anyone will get a deficient in vitamin A eating an animal-based diet uh, if it's nose to tail. If you just ate muscle meat, then you probably could develop vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin, so you have quite a bit of store in your liver. So it would take two to three years or more. You know, uh, Vitamin C comes up a lot. And you know what's so interesting about vitamin C is that um, there is vitamin C in muscle meat, and there's vitamin C in uh, liver, and there's vitamin C in brain. And so if we are eating the whole animal, and people are probably saying, oh, I can't eat brain. But if, if people are eating the whole animal, if they're eating muscle meat that's not overcooked, and they are eating uh, liver in moderate amounts, they probably will get enough vitamin C, and they will not become uh, scorbutic or develop scurvy. There were experiments done in World War II um, where they, they actually, I think they had recruits, or maybe they were prisoners of war, and they, they made those people, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but they made those people develop scurvy. And then they looked to see how much vitamin C was needed to reverse that. And it was only 10 milligrams a day. And if you look at muscle meat, 
we can easily obtain 10 milligram, milligrams a day eating muscle meat. So it's pretty hard. And if you, you know, I, though I expressed concern for Jordan Peterson and his daughter, Michaela, who I think also has just a fully meat and water diet, you know, Michaela Peterson posted recently, she said, well, look, the scurvy is setting in. And she had this, you know, beautiful picture of her in a bikini. They, people don't, people don't look like they're having scurvy, you know, none of these people, you know, look like they're having scurvy. So um, it doesn't seem to be an issue. And, you know, again, this goes back to the idea of functional medicine and we should probably do testing and make sure that the oxidative stress parameters are within normal. But um, this gets into something, you know, uh, that's probably very counterculture in the functional medicine space that I, I also am concerned that some people may react to supplements. You know, there's these binders and silicon dioxide. And I think, you know, these molecules, I went into this on my Instagram a little bit. You know, the majority of vitamin C supplements are made from corn and it's all GMO corn that's coming from China. So, and you know, there's this question, you know, it's all ascorbic acid. And it's like, well, maybe people could potentially react to that immunologically. It doesn't sound totally great. So, you know, I'm not saying no supplements are good for anyone ever. I'm just saying that there's a potential that some people could be reacting to things that are in supplements. People see this with pharmaceutical medications all the time, that they'll take one pharmaceutical medication and then switch to a different brand of the same molecule, you know, whether it's generic and, or name brand, and they won't feel the same. And that may have to do with the pharmacokinetics and the binders, but you know, these, these ad, these adjuvants or the binders and the medications, I mean, these are molecules. We could react to these immunologically. And so I think that for people, if they want to do an elimination diet, they should stop all their supplements as well. Like we shouldn't be having any immunologic inputs. So we really get a baseline. And that's, that's an interesting concept to me that some people may uh, in fact, do better with um, without any supplements. And you know, like I said, I think that if you're eating nose to tail, you don't need them. Personally, I found that um, my eczema, uh, which was a, an issue for me in the last um, probably decade of my life, only fully cleared up when I stopped all of my synthetic supplements. I was on a carnivore diet for many months and I still had it. And I thought, man, you know, I, I'm not eating any plants. What is going on here? And then when I stopped all of my supplements, you know, I thought, I probably don't need this you know, folate, I, you know, I'm probably getting enough folate in the liver and I don't need this you know, X, Y, or Z, then it seems to go away. So it's only an N of one for me, but it's an interesting concept. Well, again, and that's what I love about sharing these stories because there, there probably are some people listening to this right now who can relate to that, who may have gone on a more carnivorous diet and are still supplementing because of the fear of maybe getting deficient in something, but they're not getting a resolution as they were expecting as they hear about in the like the meat heal story. And right. And this is worth potentially just another experiment to say, well, just cut it all out. And yes. because you could be reacting to even your healthy supplements. Exactly. And that's, again, that's going to fly in the face of functional medicine norms. You know, it's like, well, and I'm not saying, like I said, that supplements are bad for everyone. I think they can be useful in some selected circumstances, but we definitely know there's variability in quality, mm -hmm. right? There's a, there's quite a bit of quality difference in supplements. Oh, for sure. yeah, I definitely think people could react to supplements immunologically. Yeah. So Paul, we've had a great hour chatting here. It's flown by. Um, <laughs> I thought I think we covered a lot of good aspects when it comes to the benefits of nose to tail eating and and pulling in fun the, all the functional medicine now into the animal based world, which to yeah. me is so novel. Like this is no one's talking about this. So I find this really interesting to talk about. Um, if anyone would like to maybe get hold of you, follow you, are there any particular social media or ways that you would recommend that people contact you? Yeah. So if people want to work with me as a physician, I, I do um, see patients virtually and they can send me an email at paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. The last name is spelled S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O, like salad and dinosaur. So my email is Paul 
saladinomd at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at Paul Saladino MD. I'm on Twitter at MD Saladino. I have a website, which is paulsaladinomd.com. People can learn a little bit more about me. And there's an index um, of various previous podcasts that I've done there. If people want to uh, learn more about the things I've talked about in the past. Um, and those are probably the best media outlets for now. Yeah, people can reach out to me and interact. But it's been great, man. Thanks for having me. No problems. And yeah, I'll link to all of those in the show notes for listeners. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary.